I'm looking for volunteers for those four verses. Who would like to volunteer for Acts 19, 1 through 10? Perfect. We've got Selva for that one, and we have Acts 19, 11 to 20. Great. All right. Um, uh, sorry. Bill. Sometimes my mind, it's always names that I'm slow on. Um, and then Acts 19, 21 to 41, a little longer. Anybody? All right, Gail. And then we have Acts 20, 17 to 36. 20, 17. All right, Gene, you've got that one. All right. Um, let's go ahead and pray. We're going to start off with the author. And before we start to read those passages, I'm going to give a little bit of a preface. So with that, let's open in, in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that we have this opportunity to come together. We ask that your spirit lead and guide us and that we truly grasp that, that we're not walking in the flesh trying to figure this out just by our own uh, understanding, our own uh, means, Father. Certainly you come alongside the, the, the minds you have given us, uh, but and also it is true that your spirit is one that really enlightens the truth to us in these passages. So we pray that he does the work that only he can do in our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so we're in the book, A Biblical Theological Introduction to the New Testament. This is class nine. It's hard to believe that we're already on class nine. Um, we're in Ephesians. Our author on this particular book is Guy Prentice Waters. I don't know if you've ever heard of him before. Um, he did a great job. One of the things that he did for me that I had not seen before is he points out a... Uh, What's really going on in the, in the church and the city of Ephesus at this time that's causing the church to... It's giving him a direction on why he's writing what he's writing because he doesn't lead off like other, uh, other letters. He'll lay out you know, some of the things that they're doing, that some of the issues up front, and you sit there and you go, oh, I know where he's going. He's dealing with families on this. He's dealing with marriages over here. He's dealing... This one, he just starts... And we're left going, hmm, why does he go there? And so it, uh, if you start to see, the reason I want to read Acts is because he did, this particular author does a great job of getting you rooted in the context of what's going on in Ephesus before he launches into the, the letter of, of Ephesians. And so uh, first off, the, the author is Paul, and we know that uh, from the very first word. It says Ephesians 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints, who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. One of the reasons I prayed what I prayed today before we started, that we're not just walking in the flesh, is because to read some of the liberal theologians on who is the author, there is so much spilled ink when the author is told right up front who he is. It just blows me away that men who are of highly educated sources, just because someone is educated doesn't mean they're the expert. You have to discern. And I mean, we're talking goofy ideas on who, who is the author. And I'm thinking, well, he introduced himself pretty clearly here. An apostle of Christ, and his name is Paul. All right, so let's get into the, the setting. What I want you to do, I'm going to read each of the subtitles um, before you get there. Hopefully, what I'm doing is I'm priming the pump that you start to see what I'm trying not to tell you explicitly. I'm hoping implicitly you hear it and you see it in the text. But listen to this, Acts 19, 1 through 10. 
Um, if I could, I've written these in a way that kind of help you, kind of push you in a direction of thinking this through. The coming of the Holy Spirit upon a group of disciples living in Ephesus. Acts 19, 11 to 20. The sons of Sceva. Some say Sceva. The power of the Holy Spirit in comparison to evil spirits. Acts 19, 21 to 41. A riot over the, over the trade of idolatry, gods of the world of evil. And then Acts 20, 17 to 36, Paul warns the elders about the intrusion of the workers of evil into the church. Hopefully you started to see a little bit of a theme developing there. So now let's see if we can see that theme um, with the reading of Acts 19, 1 through 10. Where are we at? Who's got it? Silva, there you go. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? They said, Into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who, who was to come after him, that is Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all, and he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Okay, so he is there for at least, he's in Ephesus for at least two and a quarter years, because he's three months in the synagogue before they are stubborn, hard-hearted, hard -hearted and, and won't listen, and so he moves to the hall of Tyrannus. Um, uh, but you can see that they go, we've not even heard of the Holy Spirit. So they're, that's an oddity to be a Christian and having not heard of the Holy Spirit, to be disciples, but they're disciples of John. John the Baptist is, the, is who they're disciples of. Okay, let's continue on. Uh, we're in 1911 to 20. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the same name of the Lord Jesus over those who, they were, who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. On the day, one day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, 
and I know about Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this <clears throat> became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. So we can see that definitely there's a, a component opposite of the Holy Spirit that is introduced to us that's going on as a common activity in Ephesus. Let's go to uh, uh, Acts 19, 21 to 41. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I have been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of, of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into dis disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her ma magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with the confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Arastarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Mm. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the, of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. 
for you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers or of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls, let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he has said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Okay. And so uh, we, keeping in mind the content of, of what caused the riot, we turn to Acts 20, 17 to 36. This is Paul calling out uh, the elders from uh, F, uh, Ephesus, or the uh, church at Ephesus, or the Ephesian church, um, to him. He's at a definite location. He says, meet me here. And so now he's still dealing with the, with, with the Ephesians in a, in a sense because he's dealing with the elders at Ephesians. So with that, it Acts 20, 17 to 36. Now for, Mil now for Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you that the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me, to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks, the repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I am go going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account for my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flocks in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among you, I'm sorry, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend to you, God, and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are satisfied. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. And in, in all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way 
we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again, and they accompanied him to the ship. So initially, um, we learned that he was there for at least two and a quarter years, and now we get more information that it was, in fact, three years that he is at Ephesus, actually being the one that's teaching and preaching and leading them. So they had quite the uh, advantage of a, a man of God who completely, I want to word it in a way that it helps. As a Pharisee of Pharisees, he would have had the Torah memorized. Think about that. The first five books of the, of the law memorized. Um, he would know to a degree the connections that we are trying to in Sunday school. This man would know them. I think I could spend my whole lifetime and, and, and never get to the depth of what he knew. And, and so to have them sit under his feet and make all the connections of, of, from the New Testament back to the Old Testament must have been an incredible, um, more than just a treat, an incredible privilege, I'll say that. Uh, for these, and yet the question I ask of you is this, what is a common theme that runs through the four accounts we just read out of Acts, and you can use the subtitles as an aid to your response? What is the theme um, that you hear that we should expect to see when he writes back to the Ephesian church? And so, Mark, where are you? There you are. We might have to jump around a little bit. Um, and by the way, I'm not looking for there's not just one little line here that I'm looking for. I'm looking for you guys to just give me some ideas, and we'll build on this as we talk through it. Anybody? And we got Gary in the back, Mark. And then I would say there's more than one theme, but kind of an overarching theme. Well, what I'm getting out of it, there's a battle between spirits, the Holy Spirit and the evil spirits. And certainly in Ephesus, there's evil spirits that... Uh, uh, are there, and certainly there are men who profit from that those evil spirits, and um, in in the end, they don't want to lose their livelihood with this new way that's coming in that's going to destroy their livelihood. It's good. I think. Uh, go ahead, Glenda. Go ahead. And also that the gospel is being um, watered down or changed. That the gospel is being, or, or I didn't hear that what you said. It's either being watered down or changed, or it could be. Paul was very could concerned be. about that. Yeah, definitely. He's, he's warning the elders in the end there, don't allow that to happen. And you notice he uses some of the things, sometimes you've heard us, uh, the elders up here, share that we preach, we teach the whole counsel of God. And some of you have said, man, why, what are we doing in these other books? I'm used to hearing these other books from the other churches that have been a part of. And our response back is, well, we'll get to all the books, if Lord willing, or somebody will, who goes beyond us. Um, but the goal is to preach the whole counsel of God. And that's what Paul, we're pattering that after Paul. He's trying to get through everything. He's not picking his favorites and staying in the New Testament and avoiding the Old Testament. He's got the whole counsel of God so that they get a fuller understanding, a robust understanding. So I think we've got what I'm looking for from you guys as a group, and that is that we have a spiritual battle going on in Ephesus that is intense. It 
infiltrates the entire culture, including the economy. There is no part of the culture that this war between the false gods and now who, well, this God that, that Paul is bringing into the gospel, there's no part of that that there's not a, a challenge to it. And to, you've heard the expression, if you want to get someone's attention, go after their wallet. Uh, when, when the gospel will affect somebody's wallet, you'll get a fight on your hands. You'll get a riot on your hands because that's my, this is my livelihood. This is, this is, my, this is how I sustain myself in this culture. So I, armed with that, hopefully you're less surprised to see an entire chapter, chapter 6 of Ephesians, designated specifically to the structure and the power of the evil world. That's why you see it in Ephesians. Now, what you may not have seen that I didn't see until this author pointed out is he's spending the other five chapters trying to give us a footing, a foothold, an, an understanding, a foundation of who their God is and who their identity is in their God so that he can launch into six and they're not, they're not afraid. They have a whole culture that wants to eat them up if, it, if, if, if the message of the gospel makes them in any way uncomfortable or affects their livelihood, and they know the power of an entire culture and, and the ostracism, the loneliness, the persecution they're going to receive by simply bringing the message. So armed with that, hopefully you take a new, fresh look at Ephesians, and you've got... You've got something to work with. And in fact, I'll say this. I've got it down in the questions, but I'm going to contextualize it. Paul does something really neat. Paul does it better. I shouldn't say that. I see it more readily in Paul. Paul contextualizes the gospel over and over and over. Paul doesn't water down the gospel. Paul listens. He knows. He lives in the culture for three years he knows the issues, and he knows how to present the gospel based on the issues. The gospel is not simply a formula. If you come at somebody and you just share the gospel and put it in their face, there's a chance they're going to take that hand and knock it away from their face because you've given, you have no idea the context that they're living in. You're, you're speaking something foreign to them. So as you think about how do I witness to this person, certainly... You can, cold, if, if you will say it this way, you can cold, cold hit, cold, whatever. I can't think of that. I'm not, I never was in sales. You can hit somebody up. What's that? Somebody say it? Cold call. Cold call somebody and, and give them the gospel, and they may respond. And, in, and if you only have one opportunity to share it with somebody, you have a compressed amount of time, I get it. Share it. But my point is, oftentimes it's a miss because the people that are a part of our lives, we've been taught a system of a presentation of the gospel versus listening to their needs. Ask them questions. Find out where they're hurting. Find out what's important to them and what's not important to them. And, and all of those things. And then present the gospel in a context that they want to hear it. Do you see what I'm saying? It's, when I say want to hear it, they have a they're more likely to hear it because now it, it associates with what they're dealing with. Now, they may absolutely, hands down, say that, you know, violent against it, or they may just say, no, that's not for me. 
but at least you haven't been the stumbling block to the gospel by coming in with no context. They, they feel like you haven't even listened to them. You just want to sell your little bit of information and move along to the next person. And hey, I've, done my, I've dropped my seeds. I did my little Johnny Appleseed. Let us not be like that. Okay, with that then, let's take a look at uh, um, st structure there. I'm going to just lead us through this portion right here. Paul placed particular emphasis upon the subjugation of the powers of evil to Christ and the nature, calling, and destiny of the church of Jesus Christ. Fascinating. You've got a whole culture that um, believes that these, these gods are in control, they're powerful. In fact, you give them sacrifice so that they will keep you safe and prospering. They'll, they'll bring to you prosperity. Um, that's what they are, they are living in the midst of. And so Paul's going right after that. He wants to demonstrate that Christ has got the powers of, the, of this evil world under him. He is over them. He is in control of them. They have no power over him. We continue on. Paul emphasizes the importance of Christians in understanding the church uh, is the instrument through which God makes the wisdom, the truth and power of the gospel, known to the powers of darkness. This is one of those where uh, Bodhi Bauckham says, if you, if you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch. And what, I, what he means by that is, wow, if, if you are living out a weak life, a, a life that cowers in the face of the knowledge of, of whatever that evil is demonstrating itself in your culture, in our culture, then you are not, you are showing them a weak God. Not only are you showing them a weakness of your understanding of your God, but you're demonstrating to them a weak God. And Jesus Christ is not a weak God. And that's what he's trying to get across to these people that say, what is our identity in the midst of this of this?" Uh, culture, and he's saying, you're overcomers. You're the ones that are the, the product, the image bearers of the king, of the one who overcame death. They, these, these are the weak ones. Do not look at the culture and cower at what the culture is trying to communicate to you. And interesting, he does it over and over again, and this is where I, I love Paul, because he's a Jew, a Jew of Jews, and he gives it to us in a Jewish context, and what I mean by that. Oftentimes, we, we wear our, our Western sunglasses, our Western glasses, like I have my glasses. I can't read without these glasses. This is the lens by which I'm able to, to take in. We see the Bible through a lens of individuality in this culture. We're Americans. We do things. We're, there's nothing that we, that we can't do, we're told from childhood. You want to be an astronaut? You want to be a doctor? You want to be this? You just have to work hard enough and you can get it. And there's a culture that makes that possible. We're not suppressed. And we say, thank God for that. But what I'm saying is we are raised in a culture that is very individualistic. Paul's not going to allow have any of that with the Ephesians. He's making sure that they understand it's the church. You are a church. Your, your identity comes by way of being part of the church. The church is the family of God. The church is the bride of Christ. Christ is the one who overcame. Your context of who you are is tied to the church. And we've got to see that. We, when we, st we start to stumble and fall to the devil in our identities, oftentimes we're looking so far inward at who we are 
just in ourselves, you know, our personality or what we're good at or what are our weaknesses or what are our strengths. Your identity is in Christ and you are the bride, you are part of the bride of Christ. We've got to see that. And that's what Paul goes over and over again on. So let's continue on. And bullet points underneath there. There's four underneath structure. The church is the body of Christ and Christ Jesus is her head. The church is the household of God. And that's, by the way, according to Ephesians 1.22. The church is the household of God. Paul's saying it in a different way. That's 2.19. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. But who's the cornerstone of this foundation? You can't get any straight lines. You can't make the whole building work without the cornerstone being set perfectly. Who's the cornerstone? Christ Jesus. That's the cornerstone. And Paul wants them to, to understand that. Then you have the church is growing. Number, bullet point number three. Is growing into a holy temple in the Lord. Not only... Does the Bible teach us that the Holy Spirit dwells within each of us? But if you take this Rambo Christian mentality that therefore I don't need church and I can go about and do it my own way, you have missed what God is doing in the church, his people as a corporate body of Christ. And we see that it says that the church is growing into a holy temple in the Lord a dwelling place for God by the, by the Spirit. And we see the, him dealing with the, making sure that we, or at least Ephesians and us now too, understand the role and the, and the person of the Holy Spirit. And lastly there, in bullet point number four, Paul goes out of his way to incorporate the fullness of the Godhead, the Trinity, in Ephesians so that they would understand the role and the power of each person. And what I thought I would do is, I'm just going to read this, and I'm going to give you the, the uh, every time there's a, I'm losing my mind, uh, pronoun, where it's like a his, a his or him or whatever, we don't, we're not sure what it is, what's the antecedent, what is the noun it's pointing back to, because sometimes you get in a, you look at this and you go like, who's the his here? Gosh, he's, he's done like three lines. Who, which his is it? I just want to listen to, want you to listen to how I read it, and you guys can, can realize, oh my goodness, look what Paul is doing to bring in the Trinity, to get us to have a right understanding of who each person of the Trinity is in their role. In essence, they're all God, but how they work in the role. So turn to Ephesians 1, and we're going to go through this together. Am I the only person? Well, I'll say it this way. Did anyone learn it this way in finding out where four books of the Bible are, starting with Galatians? General, General Electric Power Company? <laughs> that, that, that's just the way I was taught it. And so I can, if I can find Galatians, I know where my Ephesians are. Just something strange. I'm just throwing that out there. Helpful for me. You guys may now have been contaminated, and you're like, please, I wish you would have never said that. It's like when your, uh, your wife tells you, please don't hit don't uh, hum that tune anymore. You're driving me nuts. I've got that tune going through my head all the time. Maybe I messed up your understanding of how you look for the, or you know where the books of the Bibles are, of the Bible is. Sorry about that. Okay, Ephesians 1. I'm going to read you the whole chapter. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. He nails Christ Jesus right there. By the will of God. Interesting, in the New Testament, as a general hermeneutic, Hermeneutic is, is a mechanism by which we understand things. That's what the word hermeneutic means. It comes from Greek. As a general rule, and I mean general, so you guys should be uh, looking at this. When you see the word God, 
Most of the time it's referring to God the Father. But sometimes it will be clarified to make sense and make sure it is. Some of the time it's talking about the whole Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So when you see God, don't just, you, you can get an idea, but you got to do some work on the context around you. When, it, when, the, when the writer is speaking, the human writing is speaking of God, what person of the Trinity is he speaking of? Most of the time it's God the Father. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father. See that? He clarified the, the, which person of, the, of the, the Trinity he was referencing underneath that umbrella terminology of God, God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be, the God, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So he is the pronoun. The Father is the pronoun. What has he done? Who has, who has blessed us in Christ. Now, if you are struggling with your identity, if you're feeling kicked by your society like a, 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 like a can getting kicked down the road and you feel like, man, I, I just feel like I am worth nothing to this society. I, you know, in some sense, that's true as far as the worldly sense, the worldly society. Hopefully you never feel that way in the body of Christ. But I want you to see Ephesians is the place we go back to. And if you have a friend that is struggling with their identity, we go back to Ephesians because Paul is nailing down. Their identity is in Christ Jesus as well as the other components of the, the Godhead in the midst of all this. It's, it's, you can't get through chapter 1 without going, thank you, God. I've got clarity of who I am. I needed that reminder. I, I just felt kicked this week. I'm going to start again from verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he, God the Father, chose us in him, in Christ, because we saw that earlier, before the foundations of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, before God the Father, in love. He, he, he that's God the Father, predestined us for adoption as sons, we are, uh, we are sons of the Father, daughters of the Father, through Christ Jesus, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, that's God the Father's grace, with which he, he God the Father, has blessed us in the beloved, capital B, most, if you have an ESV, you'll notice it's capital B, that's now that's to Jesus. In him we have redemption through his blood, we're talking about Jesus, the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, that's God the Father's will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of, of time to unite all things in him, that's, that would be Christ Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth. That's where we're headed to. Christ has already begun the uniting process by what he did on the, by living a perfect life, dying for our, our sins, and then being raised over the power of, of death. He now is the king above all enemies. He hasn't put uh, death under his footstool as the last enemy. He'll do that in the end, meaning that there'll be absolutely no death. We still experience death, but he is above. He has demonstrated he has power over death right now. So we can see that all things, we're, we're working through a time when Christ will we'll see the fullness of all things being subjugated to Christ. We don't see that fullness. We know that is true. We just don't see it yet. That will be known, and felt, and experienced in its fullest upon Jesus Christ's 
return. But we know that is absolutely true, that he is over all. In him we have obtained an inheritance, that's in, in Christ Jesus, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, as that would be God the Father, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that's the Father's will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory, the glory of God and, and his will and, and what he has deemed the, the plan of resurrection, excuse me, the plan of salvation, I said that wrong. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him and in, in Jesus Christ were sealed, and here we're going to get the Holy Spirit, with the promised Holy Spirit, another word for sealed he uses here, who is a guarantee some, some of the older translations talk about a down payment. He is a or a surety. You'll hear Paul use that. You're guaranteed of, of this, of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Hopefully that's an encouragement to you. That's your identity. Your identity is not in how, how, how successful you are in your work. Your identity isn't in uh, how successful you are as a, a parent. Your identity is in Christ. And ultimately, our obedience to, to Christ is what he asks for, our worship of him. And he's in control of the, out, the, of the outcome of all things that we are participating in. What a, what a heavy weight that would be to think that if I did something wrong, my child could not be a Christian as a parent. What a wrong theology that is taught sometimes out there. I am called as a parent, or was called and now as a grandparent, to, to make sure that the home reflects that of a godly home as, as identified through the, the laws and precepts and principles of God. But I can't change my children's hearts. That's God's work. He accomplishes the result that he intends. We need to just be faithful. So our identity isn't, isn't tied to performance. I mean, I don't know about you, but my whole work life was tied, as in the corporate world, was tied to performance. I don't, and yet, so we can easily think that it can seep into our understanding of our, our identity in Christ. And we don't want that. Let's look here uh, underneath the outline. It says this. Paul breaks the letter down into, a general into general, two general categories that would be particularly helpful to the Ephesians who were struggling to understand their identity and, and how to live out their identity in a culture that was driven by the worship of false gods. I have heard it before, very, very simplistically put, the first three chapters are the indicatives, it indicates who we are in Christ, and the last three chapters are the imperatives. And I say to that, that's helpful, and yet that's challenging also because you can just see it that like, almost pulls it away, pulls it out of the context of the identity in Christ and how we live in that identity or live out that identity as Christians. I just want to make sure we don't remove that, and, and there's always that context of the church. So it says there, chapters uh, 1 through 3 focus on the identity the church has in Christ. Every member, yes. So there's a little bit of individuality, but the overall is the church he's talking to. And then chapters 4 through 6 focus on the application of that identity by the church in the world through everyday life. Fantastic book to, if you want to be practical and what does it look like to live out that identity. And I want to leave us with this before I open it up for any questions. Reality check. 
If you think the Ephesus, the letter to the Ephesians, is kind of a, well, that's for those, those people. I mean, they were, they were weird. They were really, I mean, come on. They were worshiping idols. I mean, statues, huge statues, temples built for these huge statues of these, of these false gods. That's just kind of like a kooky thing that happened back then. Oh, brother and sister, the warfare is just as intense in this world today. I am not saying that, there, that you know, there's, a, there's an evil spirit under every bush or behind every bush. I'm not one of those that will say, you know, that'll give you a pass on your own sin and say, oh, Cindy, you only did that because the, the, the devil was tempting you. Well, no, you acted on that in your own heart. He may have been tempting you, but you acted on that. So I'm not saying that, but I'm saying this culture we live in is Ephesus. It's filled with idolatry. It demands idolatry or you are an outsider. And it will only get more difficult as the world, and we can see it in our lifetimes, the world continues to chase after this idolatry. Listen to some of these examples. I found this online. Here are the, the same issues we deal with, only in a different context. This is what the Ephesians were dealing with. Identity, money, material things, job, status, physical appearance, entertainment, sex, comfort, technology. They, they were the cutting-edge culture, the Ephesians were. Their technology looks primitive to what we're dealing with today, but they were dealing with technology. Family, children, influence, and, flame, and fame. We're there. When you read the book of Ephesians, read it as a book that's in the context of today and how it, you can see the value of it and apply it in your life. I've got like three or four minutes. Anybody have any questions? Uh, we've got uh, Bill up here. Sure. Hold on, hold on. I'm going to get you a microphone. Social media is basically these 10. Hmm. You know what's interesting? Um, social media is where so many people get their identity today. They have a, you know, I've got 256 followers. I'm valuable. I'm liked. I'm liked. That's even the terms we use. You know, that you have to put, check the like box. Yuck. Go ahead, Rob Boy. So at a high level, it's the battle of light versus darkness, the two kingdoms. Subpoint is that this battle happens outside the church and within the church because fierce wolves will come in, yeah. right? Um, another subpoint is that light will defeat darkness and the church will grow despite all of this. The identity, we were once in darkness and we were called to light. So the gospel calls those not just believers, but unbelievers, to identify with Christ. And Luke 9 said, if you're ashamed of me and my words, then I'll be ashamed of you before the Father. So there's this call to identity. The son came and identified with man and his sin and paid the price that men were guilty of and rose again. And we're called to identify with him. And that's how our walk bears out. By grace, We've been brought into identity with him, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, we live that out. And part of living that out is calling others that, were, that are in darkness as we were to identify with Christ, because in their idolatry, they're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. And so whether we cold call them or we build a relationship with them or we know them intimately or not, as Paul says, pray for me that I would uh, preach the gospel boldly, that I would speak it as I ought. And he ends with 
with that culmination um, to where we, we have to open our mouth. We have to speak it. Amen. Um, and even if someone's doing it to check a box, in Philippians, Paul even counts, though it's selfish ambition, the gospel goes forward. And what someone intended for evil, God meant for good. So cold call, warm call, hot call, <laughs> preach the gospel in season, out of season. There you go. Identities at stake. Yeah. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you. We thank you that you, you allow us so many opportunities to relate to people, to listen carefully, to, to listen to someone who actually cares about it, not, not, not for reasons to demonstrate performance. So I, I reached this, you know, I told so many people about the gospel. I, you know, listen to me. I can, you, I'm going to boast in what I do or whatever. No, Father, you give us a means to, give, to, to listen to these people out of a, out of a heart that recognizes the, the mercy you demonstrated and someone sharing with us the gospel in a context that was loving, in a context that we could understand it because we needed it. So, Father, I thank you that uh, whatever means you use, whatever people you use, please use us, the church, to spread the gospel, to demonstrate, to show the powers of darkness. They have no standing in the presence of light. Darkness will always be parted by light. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.